And we're blessed to have in our pulpit this morning uh, Hector Reynosa, who pastors Genesis Prez down in the valley. Um, they got out of the PCUSA too. And uh, I'm on the Mission South Task Force working on church planting between First Pres and the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico uh, on both sides of the border. And we've gotten to be good encouragers and supporters of Genesis Prez, Jesus Reigns Prez, and San Benito Prez. Those are three Hispanic congregations in the Rio Grande Valley that we support financially, uh, scholarship money for some of their students to go to seminary, um, COVID-19 monies, because they got really hit hard. And when they left, the PCUSA, the Presbytery, took everything they had. They even had a vacation Bible school account in one of the churches. They took that. I mean, took their lawnmower. You know, great. David, David West was their lawyer and all that. And uh, so Hector, is, he's a great guy, great preacher. Preaches in English. You can understand him. And so we're blessed to have you know, him. He's, he's an American, but you know, uh, he goes both sides of the border. And so this is our... Uh, way to honor World Communion Sunday today. Um, let me open us with a word of prayer, then I'm going to do a little refresher thing on Tulip and how that's really all about comfort and assurance. Then we'll take your questions. And if anybody has not gotten an index card and would like to write a question, just raise your hand and uh, I'll collect them later. You can ask me anything you want. And uh, anybody else need an index card? And some of you handed some in last week. So I've got a stack here. I have not looked at them. I have no idea what you're asking, but we'll find out. This should be fun. I enjoy doing these kind of things. Let's pray. Lord God, on this beautiful day, we do thank you that we thank you for the communion of saints. That um, as we come to Christ, we become linked to every Christian that's ever lived, as well as every Christian that's on the planet right now. And that's a communion that, can, that cannot be broken. And we thank you that uh, we get a tangible taste of that literally today as we take bread and wine and remember that we dine at your table with every believer of the past, present, and future. And uh, Lord, uh, Anoint our brother Hector as he preaches this morning. Pour through him the gift of preaching. And we pray for those three valley churches, Genesis Prez, which he pastors, and Jesus Reigns Prez, and San Benito Prez, that they would continue to flourish there in the Rio Grande Valley, and that we as a congregation would learn uh, or be captured by your vision for how we're to come alongside them in a faithful, non-paternalistic way to help their ministries prosper and flourish, and vice versa, because we can learn a lot from them. Lord, guide our thoughts today, uh, and may we all leave here comforted and assured uh, of who we are in Christ and our destiny that is sealed in Him. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought we'd just quickly just go through. I want you all to leave here above everything else with comfort and assurance. The five points of Calvinism are not Calvin's. He died 55 years for they were laid out. 
You can find these things in his writings, but he'd be shocked uh, to think that they're called the Five Points of Calvinism. They were developed by the, the Synod of Dort of the Dutch Reformed Church in 1618, 1619, in response to a pastor in Holland, Jacob Arminius, uh, who was bucking against these parts of the Reformed faith, and they came up with what's called the Five Canons of Dort, D-O-R-D-T, uh, and said all the pastors in the Dutch Reformed Church need to believe these five things. And so Arminius left the uh, church. Today, oftentimes people talk about you're either Reformed or you're Arminian, not Armenian, Arminian. That comes from Arminius, that pastor. And um, so anyway, uh, but Calvin, in laying out the Christian faith, these institutes of the Christian religion, is arguably one of the best things ever written. Even Roman Catholics say this is superb. It's really a, 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 his analysis of the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And it was written for lay people. So don't be afraid of getting, you can probably get it online. It's, long, it's two volumes, but uh, he really has a great way of laying out scripture. And as a pastor, Calvin's chief goal for his congregation, St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva, was everybody had assurance of their faith and uh, had complete comfort, particularly as they approached their own death. He wanted them to die well. Of course, they live in a day and age when, you know, they Average lifespan was like 38 or something. So um, death was always on their minds. Well, death is relative to the age at which you die. I always think about, you know, if we lived back in the time of Methuselah and everything, if we lived to be 200 years old and died, they'd go, oh, he died so young. Uh, so <laughs> now if you live to be 100, oh, they're so old. It's all kind of relative. And every Christian needs to be assured. You don't know when your number's up. A man knows not his time. I could get hit by a truck this afternoon, be in perfect health. So we need to be prepared and know where we're going and have that comfort and assurance. And these doctrines, Calvin said about the Reformed faith, particularly about election and predestination, they're not to be bandied before unbelievers. They're not to be argued or really debated about in the church. They're solely for comfort and assurance. So I want you to leave here assured and comforted. So I thought I'd just read a few verses. Like T, uh, total depravity. Remember, it's not total in the sense that permeating depravity would probably be a better term. That sin permeates every facet of our lives to some extent. So even in our best deeds, we still sin. We're rarely ever totally uh, not focused on ourselves. And... Um, Isaiah 118, if you want to follow along with me in your Bibles, I'm just going to read these. And uh, this kind of makes the point uh, that we're sinners. Um, but there's a, a promise here. I want you to have these promises in relation to all these. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, you get a picture there of, you know, that like sin is kind of like, you know, 
if you drop just a few drops of red dye into your washing machine, you know, your, your whole laundry comes out, you know, pink. Uh, that's sort of what, the way sin works. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Here's a promise in the Old Testament that our sins will be completely covered, washed away. Of course, this is messianic prophecy, looking forward to the coming of Christ. Romans 6.23, everybody should memorize this, um, because it it brings home uh, reality of our reality of, of sin in our lives. When Paul writes, he says, um, oops, reading Romans 7.23, that's not good. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You know, this total depravity means we're going to face not just physical death, but a spiritual death on the other side of that, sometimes referred to as eternal death. But, and here's the promise, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin does not win. We have that promise. Um, I love the bumper sticker that says, you know, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You know, if you're only physically born, but you don't receive Christ, then you're going to die a physical death one day, then eternal death. But if you're born again, born twice, you only die once. That's God's promise. And then Romans 8.1, I'm not going to read it because I have it memorized. Um, This is what you should walk out of here understanding that those sins stained your life. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you don't need to fear hell, perdition, eternal death, second death, or God's judgment or condemnation. All of that went on Christ on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, that means your sin was completely paid for. Then the U is unconditional election. Ephesians 1.4, we've already looked at that, but I want to go back to that again. Um, One of my favorite verses in Scripture because it it lays it out. Um, Even as He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, before the earth even existed, or the universe, God had already thought about you and me, chosen us, and... um, before he ever did creation, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, this is all about love, his love relationship with us, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So before the foundation of the world, he decided, I'm going to adopt you and me into his, his, his kingdom. Um, and then John 6:44. this is Jesus speaking. He says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. When I came to Christ at age 10, if you'd interviewed me and said, did you do this on your own volition? Line this out. How do you think this worked? I'd say, well, I heard some things and I made a decision to follow Christ. Um, I would have really believed that. And in one sense, I'm correct. 
I had to make a choice. But once I matured in faith and looked back over my life, I can see how the Father was drawing me. You know, I was a goner before I ever went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. He already had my number. And he was weaving things and people in and out of my life and drawing me to himself, ultimately by his love. You know, I said, uh, you know, when you love somebody, it usually elicits love in return. Not always, but, but God's love. When he puts his loving hand upon you, he draws you to himself. Then Acts 16.31, here's the great promise. Um, when Paul is talking to the, the jailer, believe, when the jailer says, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, you might be saved, or you have nine shots out of ten. He says, you will be saved. You and I need to cling to that promise. But what does it mean to believe? intellectual assent to the Apostles' Creed. Let me tell you a true story. It helps me understand what it really means to believe. Charles Blondin, late 19th century, was the greatest tight wire walker in the world. And he decided he was going to do something no one else had ever done. He was going to stretch a tight wire across the top of Niagara Falls and walk from the American side to the Canadian side. Of course, this was a big deal. The press was there. Crowds gathered on both sides, tens of thousands of people. And uh, there's like millions of gallons of water going over Niagara Falls at any one time, which creates a tremendous updraft. And so they, had, they went days ahead of time, and they stretched this tight wire across. Then they had guy wires anchoring it on both sides so the thing would not move because all this these, you know, air was coming up, the, the draft. And uh, so the thing was taut. And so Blondine shows up, and he's got his pole. And he sets out from the American side to the Canadian side, going across. You know, He makes it to the Canadian side. The crowds erupt. They go wild. He turns around and goes back across to the American side. Well, you know, Flash bulbs are popping, and the reporters are... And he gets up on this podium, and the crowds are crying, Blondine! 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 And he's raking it all in. He's enjoying the fame and the accolade. And he says, who's the greatest tight wire walker in the world? Blondine! 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 And he said, how many of you believe that I could walk back across with a... Man on my shoulders. Yes, you could, because you're the greatest. And he said, may I have a volunteer? <laughs> now you get intellectual assent. They said, yeah, you can do that. Now we move into the realm of what it really means to believe. Who is going to get on my shoulders? The way the story goes, he, nobody volunteers. So he turns to his manager. Now, this guy must have been really hard up for work. He says, what about you? Do you believe I could do that? Uh, uh, yeah. He said, get on. So the guy gets on his shoulders. Blondine's got his pole. He's on his shoulders. They're walking across. And they get about halfway across, and bing, one of the guy wires snaps. Suddenly, the wire is going like this. Blondine says to his manager, 
Don't panic. <laughs> but look, you've got to do everything I tell you or we're both going to die. You have got to become one with me. If the wire is swaying to the left and your gut is telling you, lean to the right to balance that, but you feel me leaning to the left, go against your gut and go with me or we're both going to die. They make it safely to the Canadian side. Now there's always holes in any kind of illustration, but I hope you can see the point this makes about what it really means to believe. Christ draws us up onto his shoulders. And then he says, become one with me. And I don't know about you, but when Christ calls me to do some things, I'm like, is there anybody else up there? Or you've got to be kidding me. No way. I don't want to do that. And there are times when I don't do it. I go, I'm getting off your shoulders. Um, fortunately, Christ says, you can come back. And I repent. And I, he allows me to come back. Becoming one with Christ. Communion today is one of the tangible ways you and I seal that union with Christ. We become one with him. Something happens in communion more than tasting some wine and a not very tasty piece of bread. Um, we believe that the Holy Spirit honors that, begins to work in our lives in ways that may be obvious or not obvious to us. Every time we take communion, we are renewing and Christ is renewing that communion with us. He invites you to that table this morning. He invites you onto his shoulders. Then L, limited atonement. Um, if you look at Matthew 7, 21, here's Christ making, making the uh, argument for limited atonement, atonement himself when he says, verse 21, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Whoa, Christ is saying not everybody inside of the church that says, Lord, Lord. I had a member at my church in Baltimore who transferred. He and his family moved to Baltimore from Dallas. They were members of the Highland Park Press, which I went later on to serve. And I knew Highland Park was a solid biblical church. They joined Central Pres, but he put on his form by profession of faith, not transfer of letter. I said uh, to him, well, you should be transferred. He said, Ron, I just crossed my fingers in Dallas. I didn't have any faith. I just knew I had to say yes, and Jesus is Lord to get in. Uh, but I came to Christ through this new member class. And so I'm so excited, joined by profession of faith. So not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, Christ is saying some people don't make it into the kingdom of heaven. That means his atonement doesn't save them, so it's limited. But the question is not, unless you're a universalist and believe everybody's saved, the question is, well, who limits it? Well, if you, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, he says, um, here's how you say Jesus is Lord. Uh, well, he says, basically, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when I confessed faith in Christ, yeah, it was my own choice, my own volition, but that was only because the Holy Spirit already regenerated my heart, opened my eyes, helped me to see, and enabled me to exercise my free will to make that choice of Christ.
And uh, then here's, here's what I want you to take away. Promise-wise, in John 6.39, this is Jesus speaking again. And this is the will of him who sent me, and, is, and this is uh, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You know, if you're thinking about, well, am, am I, is Christ's atonement good for me? Well, if you've confessed Christ, he will not lose you. He doesn't lose anyone. Um, so, so don't worry about whether his atonement is efficacious for you. If you've confessed him, it is. And then uh, irresistible grace. I just call you back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, you know, we are saved by grace. Remember, grace is Jesus, grace in the flesh, through faith, which is a personal relationship with Christ. Um, and I told the story about how, you know, my love for Anne, her love for me, it became a point in our relationship where I couldn't anymore walk away. Her name is Grace in Hebrew, and Chain. I couldn't anymore walk away from She became irresistible. That doesn't mean you and I cannot penultimately resist God's grace. I did that for 10 years on a prodigal journey at age 14 to 24, and I ran from God. Not because I didn't believe, because I did believe. I didn't want him to be Lord. I wanted to be Lord. I wanted everything else, but I wanted to call the shots. And fortunately, God did not wipe his hands of me. He drew me back into the faith. And ultimately, God's grace is irresistible. And remember I said, people that are not the elect, they don't care. They are not resisting God. You don't resist what you don't care about or don't, that you don't believe exists. Um, then finally, uh, perseverance of the saints. You can't find anything better, I don't think, than John 10, 27-30. Jesus, again, speaking as the good shepherd. He calls us his sheep. He says, you know my voice. I have called you. And I have you in my hand. And nothing, in the Greeks there, no one or nothing can snatch you out of my hand. And I and the Father are one, and the Father, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. So you were kind of doubly, never not unsafe. We are sealed. God never fumbles. And this is, you know, uh, if you're having a tough time living the Christian life, there's some Christians that just, Go to their graves. I don't know if you remember Keith Miller. It's Becky Pritchard's grandfather. I knew Keith fairly well. The guy was always in agony about his faith <laughs> and struggling. Even though he wrote all these great books and he'd speak at Lady Lodge and people were coming to cry. I was an intern at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina that had a revival because Keith came there years before I went there. And they still talked about it. But he went to his grave agonizing. Am I really a believer? Other people just, you know, have great faith. They don't seem to sweat at all. God gives us different measures of faith. But the point is, if you're trying to follow Christ, 
Your eternal, de eternal destiny is sealed. You, you're not going to derail the train. Nothing can derail that train. Christ has got you, and uh, that should help you sleep well at night. Well, let's get to the questions. And uh, make sure we got enough time here. Okay, somebody drew, I haven't looked at any of these. I don't know what's coming up here. Somebody drew the illustration I did of the, the, the train and said, could this be possible only th through Christ can you get salvation? Yeah, only through, oh, I see what they're saying there. They're, they connect two cars with Christ as the connection, and that's the only way of salvation. Yeah, that's, I'd say that's a good illustration. Then they say Romans 8.29, we're all that God foreknew, we're all that God foreknew be all of us in the last boxcar. Could he have predestined all of us, but of our free will, we decide on a new life through Christ and move to the front boxcar? I'm not sure I really understand over here. One act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. I can't answer that last one. When Paul's talking about all there, I believe, and most commentators believe he's talking about all who are part of the body of Christ. Because um, obviously, I mean, if it referred to everybody, then what Jesus said, not everybody says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Somebody's not right. I'll go with Jesus on that one. I'm not sure I answered that very well, but that's my best shot right now. How would or did, did Jesus explain God's killing of so many people in the Old Testament? Let's see. Boy, I tell you, I read the Bible every year, and I get to Joshua, and I just go, oh, Lord. Um, I don't like it. He clearly tells them to go and basically wipe out villages, men, women, children. Yeah, and I'm an animal lover, sometimes more than people. Um, I don't like it. Most scholars explain it by saying he knew that had to happen because if there was the infection, I mean, these people were so, their lifestyles were so awful. Child sacrifice, all kinds of stuff that I'm not going to go into sexually. You know, that if they existed, God knew that the Israelites would be seduced. And the Israelites never carry out his command. And what happens? Now, Still, I go, well, couldn't you figure it out some other way? Have them all evangelize and all come to Yahweh. All I can say is, if I'm going to throw that out, then what other parts of Scripture do I need to throw out? I'm unwilling. That's what liberal Christianity says. I'm not going to go with that. And then, then it becomes lubies. The Bible becomes a lubies cafeteria. Instead, I've decided with the Reformed confessions of our church to believe in the plenary inspiration and infallibility of Scripture from Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21. With stuff I don't like, it gives me a very angular God, one that I'm angry at sometimes. Bible gives permission for that. David gets angry at God when God strikes down Uzzah, who's trying to keep the ark from falling off the cart. We have permission to be angry at God. But I'm going to hold 
that's 2 Samuel 6. I'm going to hold that together with John 3.16. Ultimately, I'm going to look at God through the lens of the cross as a God of love who has undeservedly redeemed me through the death of Jesus Christ and that when I get into eternity from a vantage point of eternity, hopefully I'll be able to look at Joshua and 2 Samuel 6 and go, like C.S. Lewis says, now I understand. Otherwise, I just go through the Bible creating the God that I want him to look like and act like. Guess what I come out with? Ron Skates. It's idolatry. But I don't like it. You don't have to like it. I love God, but I don't like everything he does. Kind of like myself. What is the only offensive weapon in Ephesians 6, and what should that beckon us to do? Are there examples when Jesus wielded the sword of the Spirit? What was the outcome? Yeah, the, everything's a, a defensive weapon except the sword of the Spirit. Um, and what's the outcome? You know, I, I think that means we're to fight with God's Word as our, our chief guide. And uh, the Word of God is much more powerful than we think it is. You know, when Jesus is assaulted by Satan in the, in the wilderness and tempted, he counters Satan with, by quoting from Scripture rather than saying, hey, Satan, I'm Jesus. I'm God incarnate. So, um, you know, I think we, Scripture needs to be our guide for how we approach the culture. And... Uh, I think we're going to win. God, God's, you know, the culture is not our enemy. People that are anti-Christian are not our enemy. They're the hostages. Satan's the enemy. So we, we're not, our goal shouldn't be to kill them. Our goal should be to fight against Satan and free the hostages. I think we'll do that better when we're equipped with the word of God as the, what we stand on and to guide us. While God will judge individuals on Judgment Day, when does God judge nations? Examples. How about October 3rd, 2021? The United States of America. You don't think the turmoil our country's in isn't God's judgmental? You know, we get, we're getting what we deserve. My prayer every day is that God will raise up goodly and godly, holy and healthy, faithful men and women in the next two elections who go, I don't care if they get a D or an R or an I, who will go to Washington to serve, not feed at the trough and join the Millionaires Club, but serve the people, support the constitution of this country, and that God in your mercy, please, through them, pull us out of the abyss we're already in. And the judgment's already come. Look at this. We live now in a culture of darkness and death, where abortion and euthanasia Sexual anarchy and craziness is just, we make the Roman Empire look like a choir practice. What is the best way to witness to the unchurched? Tracks and main sanctuary? Nah, not a whole lot of people are going to come in here unchurched. Um, this doesn't seem to be emphasized at first press. Should it be? I'm not against tracks. I'd have them in the pews, not in the narthex. In fact, I did in Baltimore. And in Dallas. Um, what's the best way to witness? You know that old saying, you may be the only Bible somebody reads. 
there, when, if you're public in a gracious, authentic way about, I'm a Christian, not wearing it on your sleeve and shoving it down people's throats, but people in your office or your school or whatever ought to be able to recognize that something's different about you. And once they figure it out, they're going to watch you very closely. And if they see, that doesn't mean be perfect. I was talking to somebody before class. Oftentimes the best witness to a non-Christian is when they see you sin, do something wrong, but you're quick to publicly own up and confess it. That says to them, whoa, this guy's faith is real. They don't expect you to be perfect. They know, I mean, your own faith, you say, I'm just a sinner. And um, so your life lived in grace and love. And look, I'm a Scotsman. When I get crosswise with somebody, I want to pull out my William Wallace sword and whoop, take their head off. And I got to stop myself. And Muslims that have become Christians have helped me on this. I've asked them, how did you become a Christian? It's either dreams or visions, or they see grace in the life of a Christian, particularly if they're in an argument or trying to start an argument with a Christian, and the Christian won't go into the argument, but just respond with grace, because there's no grace in Islam. And so that draws them. So when you and I are gracious and loving, and it's hard to do, um, that's probably the best witness uh, for unbelievers. But if you'd like to donate tracks, I'll do my best to get Bob to put them in the pews. Because sometimes people are one to Christ by, by the track. The Holy Spirit will use anything to draw somebody when it's his time. Where did the concept of dispensations and the rapture come from? How do they give us such wide acceptance in the U.S. versus the rest of the world? Um, dispensational theology. Uh, really came out of the Presbyter Southern Presbyterian Church here in the U.S. It originated in England, uh, the Darbyites. Uh, I'm not going to... And they, they, they read the Bible, and they lay it out in six dispensations, and it's really contra-reformed theology. Um, uh, Dallas Seminary, uh, started by the pastor First Pres Dallas and Second Pres Fort Worth back in the 20s, Lewis Berry Schaefer and Charles Anderson, they became dispensationalists and they started this seminary. And, um, a true dispensationalist doesn't pray the Lord's Prayer. That's for a different dispensation. Um, they would never affirm speaking in tongues because that ceased. So if somebody speaks in tongues, that's of the devil. I have many dispensationalist friends. Um, they're goodly, godly folks. I don't think it fits scripture, um, as well as covenant theology, which is what Reformed theology is. And, um, oh, there's a part, let's see. It, for some reason, it took hold here in the U.S., um, and the rapture really comes from one verse in 1 Thessalonians. It says the Lord will meet, when he returns, he will meet the, the dead in the air. Um, Maybe that's the way it's going to happen. I don't know. It's very dangerous to really base a whole theological system on one verse out of Scripture. That's how, I'm not saying dispensationalists are cultish, but that's the way a lot of cults start, sects, I should say. They'll take one thing from the periphery, put it into the center, and make it the thing, and, you know, make the main thing the main thing in your faith, which is Jesus Christ and 
Apostles' Creed faith, really. Um, and again, I want to say right here, you don't have to believe all this stuff to be a Christian. If somebody believes the Apostles' Creed, man, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. What is a good source for finding a side-by-side -side comparison of Reformed theology and unreformed theology? I know they're out there. You know, I'll tell you, a good book to get is by a, a professor who's dead now, John Gerstner. He's the guy that challenged me when I told him I was a four-point Calvinist. Gerstner spoke every year at Dallas Seminary. They loved him. And he'd come in there and rip them apart. And he wrote a book called Dallas Seminary's motto is Rightly Dividing the Word of God, which comes from Timothy. And Gerstner's title of his book is uh, Wrongly Dividing the Word of God. So if you want a comparison of Reformed theology and dispensationalism, get Gerstner's book. Gerstner also has a book on, um, that does contrast the Reformed faith with a lot of other different religions and faith systems. I forget the title of it. But you could probably just Google Reformed Faith versus Unreformed Theology books, and it'll probably pop some up for you. In the Apostles' Creed, Jesus went to hell for three days. What was he doing there? <laughs> uh, not having a good time. You know, there's a cryptic text in First Peter about Jesus going to preach to the people who died at the time of Noah. You know, the Old Testament had a concept of Sheol, this land of the dead. It wasn't a well-developed um, thing like in the New Testament. Did that happen? Apparently so. Uh, was that hell? The Jews would not say Sheol was hell. It was this kind of holding pen or something. Um, there are some people who think that whatever hell is, Jesus actually went to it. Others say hell happened on the cross. That Jesus, you know, what is hell ultimately? Total, complete separation from God. We know that happened to Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, nobody in the world has ever been forsaken by God before. Ever. Still. Except one person, Jesus. God still shining his sunlight down on every person, whether they're elect or not. The good things are happening in their lives, common grace. Jesus, everything was taken from him. He experienced hell. And somehow, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, actually says Jesus on the cross became sin for us. What does it mean that the sinless, perfect Lamb of God actually sucks up all the sin in the world? That was hell. So to totally separate from God. Well, how, if Jesus is God, how can he be separate? That's a part of the Trinity. I don't exactly understand how the Son could be separated from the Father. But that's what the Bible says, so I believe it. That's one of those things in eternity we'll go, oh, okay, now I see. Um, so what was he doing? He was taking your sin and mine onto his very self, paying the complete price so that you and I never have to worry. There is that now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what he did on the cross. Last one. I do not understand limited atonement because it seems to me that unconditional election does not allow for our atonement to be a limit to be limited. 
Okay, unconditional election means that God has chosen whoever He's chosen with no conditions. He didn't see down in the future, oh, they're going to do a lot of good deeds and, you know, be a pastor, so I'll choose them. Uh -uh. Unconditional. He does it solely out of his unconditional love. But Jesus says, not everyone says, Lord, Lord, is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying some people are not going to be there. So his atonement, the efficacy of what he did on the cross, doesn't count for them. If it did, they wouldn't be in hell. They'd be saved. Um, so it's limited. Who limits it? That's the big question. If you say, well, human beings, they, they choose against God. That sounds good, feels pretty good. Ultimately, you know what that says? That means that your salvation, everybody's salvation, is ultimately in your hands. Which, think it through, that's what theology is, thinking through as far as you can go. That means ultimately you, not God, are sovereign over what should be the most important thing in your life, whether you're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. Could it be that God loves you so much that he's placed the most important thing in your hands? And he's over there going, oh, I hope, hope they choose me. Uh, to me, that's not a loving God. If he has the power to save, and he doesn't, he puts it in your hands. My faith couldn't save a microbe. I don't have enough faith. My faith doesn't save me. I'm saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. His perfect faith. What happens to me is, when God chooses me, He drapes Christ's robe of righteousness around me. So the Father sees me. He sees Christ's righteousness draping me and makes me acceptable. He, the robe's covering up all my filthy rags and my pitiful two-bit faith. I sleep better if I think my salvation's in God's hands than if it's in my hands. So again, comfort and assurance. That's what all these doctrines are for, comfort and assurance. So if you care, if you ever worry about where you're going to spend eternity, that's a sign that you are chosen. You're one of the elect. Reprobates, people who don't give a rip, that never crosses their mind. They don't care. They're going merrily along their way. At the same time, it calls for a posture of humility and non-judgmentalism. I try to go through life assuming everybody is elect. I treat everybody as if they were elect and chosen. Doesn't matter even if they're robbing a bank. I don't say, well, that guy's obviously never going to make it. You don't know what God's going to do. You know, again, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, the cannibal. He died a Christian in prison. And I've read the account by the chaplain. Who knows Jeffrey Dahmer's heart? But at least the chaplain says, this guy was the real deal. He really came to Christ. Part of me goes, uh, I don't want to spend eternity with Jeffrey Dahmer. But it's unconditional election. If there's hope for Jeffrey Dahmer, guess what? There's hope for me and for all of us. In fact, anybody that's ever lived, you don't know who God's working in their lives. And if somebody even dies looking as a, like a total reprobate, 
You don't know that the Holy Spirit doesn't regenerate their heart at the moment of death and draw if they were chosen from before the foundation of the world. So, um, comfort, assurance. My theology is not perfect, but I'm going to err on the side of grace and sovereignty of God. That's what I've decided to do. Um, this class is now officially over, but I'm not. I'm around. Uh, my phone number is public, my email. If you ever want to go out to lunch and talk about some of this stuff, I'm still free game for you guys until I kick the bucket. So uh, I've enjoyed being with you. Uh, next Sunday, Ron Hamner will be here. He's going to do a series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, a little bit less controversial, I guess. I'll be back. They asked me to do the four Sundays of Advent. I'm going to do a four-part series on the Incarnation. What does it mean? I guarantee you're going to learn some things you never heard before about the Incarnation. We're going to go back and look at uh, Old Testament prophecies about the coming Incarnation. Possible, underline possible, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of them. We'll look at what Incarnation really means and Guess what? The Incarnation, we usually think of it as centered around Christmas. It never ends. And I'll show you how that happens. It, it will never end. Jesus never gives up his resurrection carne, flesh. At least not in Scripture. Either. Let's pray and then let's go to worship and join hands and hearts with Christians around the world and in the fulfilled kingdom, or not the fulfilled yet, but in paradise. And those coming behind us, we don't even know about yet. We're all linked at the table. Let's pray. Lord God, knit our hearts to you and to each other this morning in a unique way as we come to the table. We thank you that you're a gracious, loving, merciful God, that you love us so much you haven't left our eternal destiny up for grabs at the whim of fate or chance or in our fallible, fumbling, sinful, slippery hands. Lord, we are in the hollow of your hand and we praise you and thank you and rest upon the fact that nothing and no one can snatch us from your hand. May that give us courage as we live our lives. May it help us sleep better at night. And when our day does come, that uh, you would take us gently across the Jordan. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.